primary um, lesson here, which we've been doing now for quite some time. We took a little break with a topical issue. But we're going to back up here, and basically we're in Acts chapter 17. We're going to pick up here in verse 27, and then we're going to read chapter 18 in the book of Acts to verse 6. And as we proceed into the second missionary of Paul the Apostle, believe me, there is nothing boring in here. Pick up with verse 27. That they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after Him and find Him, though He be not far from every one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like under gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed among the which were Dionysus, the, Are- the, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So going to verse 18, Paul now leaves and he's heading to a whole nother mission field here. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome and came unto them. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. Back in chapter 17, where was Paul? Anybody remember? Where was he standing there debating? Morris Hill. Right there. He was uh, there at the Areopagus. He was debating two major philosophical sects of the Greeks, and they're the only two mentioned, the schools of the Greek philosophers, and mentioned on all of scriptures. And does anybody remember who they were? That's it. Epicurus, the Stoics and the Epicureans. So at this point, he's debating, and we're kind of like wrapping this up, but I wanted to do a little bit of review where we see the word winked at. What does it mean that God winked at their sin? Does it mean that he turned the other direction and said, that's okay, there's some people here on this earth, I don't care about their sin, they're fine. Others I'll punish, others I'll take care of, I'll fix their wagons, but these, these are fine. No, that's not how it goes. God winked at the ignorance of mankind, and what he did was he holds back his wrath at his very predestination, and that he gives many chances over and over and over for people to come and to repent. And that was really the central motif of Christ's ministry here, is to draw people to repentance, because his first message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does this tell us? God blinks at sin, or that he gives us patience, and that we do not deserve? 
Here are some lessons regarding this. This statement is, remade, is made regarding to, con, to conduct of the, the, this, the conduct of God towards a Gentile world before the gospel reached them. The Lord was very patient with the Gentiles, and we saw that in the Old Testament. Many, many verses said that the, that the prophets and that the disciples, that the Lord himself, were going to go to the Gentiles. And as all of us sitting here basically are Gentiles, we can take a real sigh of relief for that and thank the Lord for Paul's missionary work that went from, we saw from Antioch to Athens to Corinth, he'll go to Ephesus to Philippi, and he'll wind up going all throughout Europe, and those seeds are planted where many years later that gospel is going to come to America. And that's where it starts. This does not define our Lord as being lax towards sin, but that this too was an act of divine justice. God despised the times of pagan idol worship by the Gentiles. He did despise this time of ignorance. It was provoking to see his glory given to another idol. And as an act of forbearance, he did send prophets. This was an act of him, in a sense, drawing back his wrath that he could have given. He sent prophets. He was patient with the Gentiles. He was patient very much with the Jews. And he took his time. And that sometimes his patience would run out. We could see that. Deuteronomy 18.15 says, The Lord thy God will raise up thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, and him ye shall hearken. Who's that? Who's he talking about? He's going to raise up a prophet. He's going to raise up a servant. This is a messianic prophecy going all the way back to Deuteronomy. Remember how Christ said, Moses spoke of me? Moses knew me? Moses loved me? Moses is talking about the coming of Jesus. This is one of those ways that he winked at sin. What he did was he sent his son to come and to teach and to save, to bring all to repentance. God was patient with the Gentiles, and he held back his wrath on the Gentiles, but promised them the gospel would come. Isaiah 42, 6 says, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thy hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles. And who is that light of the world? That's Jesus Christ. He is the light, and he will come, and he will bring the gospel to the Gentiles. He did, not punish, he did not punish them in their, in their idolatry, idolatries as he did Israel, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Many times the pagan Gentiles were victorious in battle and they persisted in their pagan idolatry and he did not swallow them up or bring pestilence upon them as he did Israel. We see in Psalm chapter 50, verses 21 and 22, These things thou hast done and I kept silence that thou thoughtest that I would altogether such as one as thyself, but I will reprove thee, and set them in order before thine eyes. Now consider this, ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. This takes me back to the sermon from Jonathan Edwards in July, I think it was July 7th in 1741 or July 8th, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he speaks about how the bow is bent from the Lord God Almighty and his fingers are actually shivering, waiting to fire the arrow at the wicked. The arrows at the wicked. And it says here that he, he, was, he, he said, You thought you were like me, 
And this is what, where, what was he talking about? Does anybody can, because anybody can give me kind of like an, any example from the Old Testament, what the Lord was talking about? You thought you were as myself. What do you think he was saying? What do you think? It's, I, mean, I think it could be very actually easy if you think of some of the idolatry. Anybody have any ideas? Lisey. Right. Right. That's a, that's a good one. Anyone else? Isn't it amazing how they were taking these idols and they were basically saying they were worshiping God by these idols? They were making idols of wood and metal and stone and saying, we think we're just like you, so we're going to make our own idols and we're going to have that up to you, Lisey. No, no, no problem at all. Go ahead. Right. Yeah. That's right. Right. Well, basically what the, the Israelites were doing there at the mountain when they had the golden calf, they were basically saying, well, if we can't worship you the way... We're not going to worship you the way you have commanded us, so we're going to make our own idol, and we can have the same kind of worship. But that's what we have today, isn't it? There is so much worship that is supposed to be basically a substitute for where the way Lord tells us to worship. There's gimmicks, there's entertainment, and there's all kinds of things that happen in the church today, and these have basically have become gods. And that is the way people say, well, we think we are, we are as thyself. We think that we're just like you, Lord. We can do whatever we want, but that's not what the Lord says. Psalm Isaiah 42 eight then says, after what we just read, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not share with another, neither my praise to graven images. That's the bottom line. God was long-suffering to the Gentiles, and we can even see that today. We can apply that to our own land right now. Paul was telling the Greeks here who did not believe in a resurrection that even God was patient with him. He was a Pharisee, Paul says, of the Pharisees and persecuted Jews. Paul is on the missionary journey and he's telling them, I was a Pharisee. I was going into Damascus to go get the Christians and they yanked them out of their houses there to expand my territory. I got the Jewish council to sign off on my petition to go out there and take them. The Lord called down to me and said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he says, you're going to go after my church where you're going to do it through me. I'm done with you. And so what does he do? He doesn't send him to hell. He saves him. And he makes him one of the greatest missionaries that ever lived. And so then Paul, at that point, he tells the Greeks and he says, I was just like you. And the Lord has been patient with me. I could be burning in hell right now for what I did to that Christian church. And the Lord winked at it. And instead of punishing me and giving me what I deserve, he's given me the mission field. And he loved it. He never considered that a burden. He never, he never considered the work of Jesus Christ a burden. He loved doing it, and he couldn't wait to get to it. I love that. He was long-suffering. You can see if you read Paul's writing. Here's one of his writings in his prison epistles. Listen to this. Look how humble Paul is. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. I'll tell you what, can somebody look that up? Let me get you guys involved here. Somebody look up 1 Timothy 1, 12 and 13 and read that. And then we're going to read um, some, a couple of psalms here in a minute. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 and 13.
Hmm. He says, I was ignorant. You're talking about a man who had the equivalent of two PhDs in law and theology. He says, I was ignorant. I am an ignorant man. I was persecuting the church, and even though I had this brilliant... I was an academician, I had this brilliant theology, I was taught under the feet of Gamaliel, I was ignorant. Then he goes on to say later on, all that I did before Jesus Christ saved me, I counted but what? Dung. Almost a scatological comment there. He says it's just a big pile of manures, everything I was before Christ saved me, nothing meant anything. That is the creed of a Christian. You love Jesus Christ and he saved you? Thank him. And spend the rest of your life, every day of your life, thanking him and praying. Paul did. He was not quick and he was not severe with them. Paul reached out to them and he was trying to tell them, I was you once. Remember it here at the Areopagus. If you went in and you started talking about the Greek gods and you started smudging and tarnishing any of their, um, any of their appearances, because it was all nothing but these idols. We saw that video several months ago. And we could see there was an idol for everything. Even Paul said, you even have an idol to an unknown god that you don't even know what it is. And if you smudged that, if you said anything about those Greek gods, you could have been crucified right there. You could have been killed. And here Paul's standing there telling them, I was just like you. I was a persecutor. And I would kill people if they talked in the name of Jesus Christ. And here he humbly, compassionately goes to them and says, I was ignorant like you. Don't live with the veil over your eyes. Repent. He says to repent. That's what he said. We just read it there. He says repent. He commandeth in verse 30, all men everywhere to repent. This was not a means of letting them go and being rewarded for their idolatry. God has withheld his judgment for a period of time. Can someone look up Psalm 838 and someone then look up Psalm 78 verse 39? Whoever has Psalm 838, just sing out and then we'll do chapter 78 verse 39 next. Yep, Psalm 830. Wait, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. 78, 38, and 39. Someone just read Psalm 78, 38, and 39. I messed up. I missed the seven here when I was typing. Verse 39, Noah. Well, that's a beautiful verse. That's a beautiful pair of verses. You know, it's not an excuse to go out and just become like an antinomianist and just sin and sin and sin and not repent because you can sit back and say that Jesus now under the new covenant has died for my sins, his blood washes away all sin, so I can do whatever I want because I'm redeemed. No. But you know when we do fall, and we're going to have days like that, then to, and for anybody to stand up here, anybody to say, well, I have repented of my sins, and from this point forward, I will never sin the rest of my life. That's an effort in futility. I'm the champion of that, okay? <laughs> so I can say this. This verse has always been an encouragement, because he remembereth we're but dust, and he has mercy upon us. The Lord is patient with us. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful to know that he is patient and he loves us? With this statement of God's patience toward the Gentiles, what is the dominion mandate that Paul has given? 
He commandeth everyone everywhere to repent. And you know, we've had a lot of really excellent correspondence in the last several weeks for the Wednesday night prayer meeting and for the Sunday morning worship, I mean the Sunday school class, we've been talking about aborticide. And one of the things that has popped up a lot, and I've talked to several people in my industry and the business, and they've, they've, they've noticed that Maryland is one of the three wicked states that wants to pass this infanticide bill. And they are, even unsaved people, they have said to me, why hasn't God destroyed this nation yet? Why has he burnt, hasn't he burnt it to nothing because of what they're doing to these babies and all these other things? And Pride Month's coming up next week. And you can see the rainbow flag being distorted. Instead of it being a covenant of God, now it's just this perverted thing. And why? Well, this is why. We just read why. He's a patient God. And you know why I believe that he still holds back his wrath? Because there are good churches that are sending out missionaries. They're praying for their people. And they're doing the work of the Lord. And the Lord loves that. And he's very patient. Well, we see these were the first words from John the Baptist. They were the first words of Christ. Matthew 3, 2, we see that John the Baptist, his first words when he preached were, and saying, repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4, 17, these are the words of Christ. For that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Paul, something incredible happens. Look at the end. We see that some mocked. He spoke of the resurrection. And remember, the Sadducees had a real problem with that. They had a real problem with the resurrection. And he's speaking about the resurrection. He's talking about eternal life. And some mocked him. They made fun of him. They literally stood there and made fun of him. But then there were others. There were others that came along board. And we see here that, Howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And we're going to talk about them in a minute. So Paul heads to Corinth. The Apostle Paul, he was in Athens, and he had been witnessing to the Epicureans and the Stoics, yet it certainly did not come out without any rewards. Now, I was reading one commentary, and I loved a lot what was in that specific commentary. But when the writer says, well, Paul and Paul was over there at Athens, and he actually nothing actually came of his work in Athens, and so... He left immediately, and he went over to Corinth, and that's why I did. I don't believe that. I don't agree with that. He had two right here, and it turns out that one was actually in the high court of, of, of the Greeks and the Romans, and one of them is converted. And I, believe, I can bet that Paul would say, if one person will come to Jesus Christ, that's plenty. He would, of course, he wanted more, but, but, but if just one, I'm sure Paul was happy with that. We read that as Paul gave this wonderful gospel of Christ, that surely he was marked by many as crazy. He was mocked. And we read that all throughout Acts. There were many that thought he was mad, that he was, he was out of his head. He was not received very well by the Greeks, but there is always gain wherever Christ is, and normally a small remnant. Many times a small remnant. We do not know the number of Greek rulers that he stood before, but we do know that there was a great debate amongst them and that Paul dusted the very place where they stood with the gospel. Oh, they fired everyone. Can you imagine this conversation? Can you imagine taking exactly what Paul did on Mars Hill and being able to have it on a YouTube video and watching that debate up here for, about, for a few hours? Can you imagine what that sounded like and what they threw at him? And, and he just dusted the, the place where they stood. He stood firm on the gospel of Christ and went right after him. 
They would all debate, debate amongst themselves, not knowing what a true resurrection is, and even knowing, sadly, and this is what most people's problem, I think, is. Most people do not believe they need a Savior. They don't want to be saved. Saved from what? Saved by what? I have my works. I give my money to the church. I do all kind of fundraisers. I go to the, the Catholic carnivals and I give out hamburgers. I give out candy. I give all kind of stuff out. That's got to do it for me. I'm good. I am good in my own eyes. Well, you know, Scripture says there is none that doeth good. No, not one. There is none that doeth good. Why do good things, I mean, bad things happen to good people? Who says anybody's good? <laughs> I mean, it's only by the blood of Jesus Christ. Matthew 5.20 Except your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. So how could we have any righteousness above anybody on our own? I believe in that verse. Christ is saying, it's my blood. It's my sacrifice. It's my goodness. And that is your Christian confidence. And this is what Paul is bringing to Corinth. So this is very fascinating where Paul winds up. It's really interesting. Actually, Dionysus, the Areopagite, he was a member of the Areopagus court. He was one that was in the high court or the great council that presided over Areopagus or Mars Hill. He was a judge, he was a senator, and one of those from Paul, he was summoned to appear before. And this man, Dionysus, Paul's judge, actually becomes his convert. Isn't that incredible? You never know. That's why we give out tracts. That's why we tell, tell others about Jesus Christ. People need comfort. We don't sit there and give them the 12-step process. We give them the gospel. You just never know. And all of a sudden, this man, he becomes saved. And not only does he come saved, evidently, Damaris was his wife. That's when I go back and you read the writings of Euspius and some other He, this, She was his wife. There's two right there. He, his judge, Paul's judge actually became his convert. And he would have been one of the judges standing right there talking with Paul. According to the writings of Eusebius, Dionysus studied astrology in Egyptian schools. You have to really dig to find out how interesting that is. You want to know how interesting it is that if, if he did, according to the writings, Dionysus was a very, very educated man and he studied, studied astrology. What had just happened that was very astrologically incredible? All the lights went out on the earth when Christ was hanging on the cross, and he would have been there for that. What happened to the stars? What happened to the moon? Where did the Big Dipper go? You know, for hours. It, turned, it got black. If he studied astrology, he would have been thinking, boy, I remember that day when anything black got black. And I remember last Sunday after we went home from church. That afternoon, it got black. It got dark, and a tornado hit right behind our house. There were trees mowed down, a poor guy's house got smashed right up the street. You don't forget that kind of stuff, you know? So I think that's kind of interesting. It's an interesting thought. We must wonder what he thought the day that the sky went black at the crucifixion of our Savior. He was one of the ones that disputed with Paul, according to record. A woman named Damaris was said to be the wife of Dionysus. Paul had absolutely no reason to, to say here that he labored in vain. Surely it would be very unusual for any Greek authority to ever receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason I want to concentrate on that last verse in chapter 17 
is because he goes, he meets Dionysus and Damaris, and then all of a sudden Paul goes to Corinth and he meets Priscilla and Aquila. There's always people stationed. The Lord always has his soldiers stationed where he wants them. And it's incredible how he puts them in our path, especially when we need them the most. He needed help, and they loved him. Paul had absolutely no reason to ever say that he labored in vain. So here's Corinth. This time, Paul would have left the work to Dionysus and Damaris back back in, in Athens, and he would now travel to Corinth to set up a church, Dead by many accounts. People were dead there by many accounts, and a church came up. This would have been considerably incredible, considering the state of Corinth being so full of certain problems. There was an old Greek saying that meant, it is not permitted for every man to see Corinth. (laughs) Corinth was a tough place. The distance from Athens where Paul was at Mars Hill, does anybody know how long it was? Probably from Athens, it was they were east. Corinth was perfectly east from Corinth. I mean, Corinth was perfectly east from Athens. Anybody know about how far it is, roughly? It's about 64, according to some of the logistics and all, 64 point something miles. So Paul left and probably with camel, probably on foot. He traveled from Athens to Corinth. And that's roughly from if you wanted to leave here now and walk to Lidditz, Pennsylvania, or go down to southern Maryland, say like around Waldorf or something. That's about how far you'd be walking. So he leaves Athens. He goes over to Corinth. And we see here that the time frame was approximately 52 A.D. in the fall. To the fall of 53 A.D. That's how long he was there. Here Paul met Aquila and Priscilla who had just come from Rome, from which, and this, gets, this is fascinating, Claudius Caesar had just banished the Jews. Why? He was, he was trying to push away Christianity, is what he was doing. And when you see Paul write to the Romans, and you see his, I think it's his greatest work, his magnum opus is the book of Romans, he's talking to the dispersed Jews, and they were the ones scattered and chased out by Claudius. And then later Nero goes after him and starts killing them. Corinth was the leading political and commercial center located in southern Greece. It was in the Roman province of Achaia. Corinth was known many years later as Morea. It was a chief city that was filled with a lot of public events, Greek mythology, and there was the study of many great teachings of Plato and Aristotle. There was a lot of debate. There was a lot of conjecture about where man originated from and where he is going. And it was time, it was very right for the Christian church, for the Lord to put Someone in Corinth. Who better to put in there than Paul? You're talking about the playlist. If you're looking down the, the, the social register of able Christian pastors, which there are so few and far between even today, who else would you want to pick but Paul the Apostle to send him to Corinth? I mean, you're sending in somebody that you don't want to mess with. I would not want to mess with Paul. A lot of bad things happen to people to mess with Paul. He goes in there, and he is incredibly, incredibly courageous. There's a lot of bait, a lot of conjecture. Paul goes in. Corinth was situated basically as a seaport, and it filtered in many from faraway nations. It was a place of great trade with handcrafted statues, furniture, expensive trinkets, all kind of things for the king would get. Virtually all traffic between northern and southern Greece had to pass through the city. It was a time, it was a prime place of debauchery with many horrible things going on. 
And this was because of it being a great trade region. I have a lot of notes here about this because you, you build this case and you see where Paul is going. And it makes it, the more you hear about it, the more you find it being completely incredible about the work that he did there. It, it, it had an unsettled population, mixed and very evil. It housed the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. 1,000 temple priestesses who were ritual prostitutes came each evening in the city to practice their trade. Corinth prospered as a major trade city, not only for most of Greece, but for much of the Mediterranean area, including North Africa, Italy, and Asia Minor. Sports. I had sports. Does that sound familiar? A lot of sports. The Ismian Games, one of the two most famous athletic events of that day, the other being the Olympian Games, was hosted by Corinth, causing more people traffic. traffic. Even by the pagan standards of its own culture, Corinth became so morally wicked and corrupt that to be associated with being a citizen of Corinth would be synonymous with decadence, debauchery, and moral depravity. And here Paul deals with this in his opening letter to the Corinthians. He talks about what the sins. You want to know what was going on there? Listen to Paul. Can someone look up, let's see, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 7 to 10. Somebody read that. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 7 to 10. Six verses seven through ten. Okay. He hits that pretty hard in Romans 1, too. Effeminate, men seeking men, women doing that which is unnatural. He's talking about the people there. The fornicators, adulterers, effeminate, abusers of themselves with mankind. I've seen that out there in the public. Look at our new health care specialist. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. Other than that, they were pretty good people. That was a, that's a pretty good list. Remember that with Mr. Berta? <laughs> Paul will be talking heavily with the Corinthian church. Look at this letter that he sends to them. Does he go in there and meld with them? Think about that. Look at the ministries today where these big multi-million dollar pastors, they just go in and they just try to find out what's on the minds of the people, see what they like, scratch their itching ears, do whatever they want, and they pay them tons and tons of money to just tell them that everything is wonderful. God is beautiful, you're beautiful, you're wonderful. Don't worry, everything's going to be okay. What a horrible thing. Pastor. Yes. What they need. Yeah. 
Yeah, they're, they're, they went, they're felt once instead of their needs. That's a good way of putting it. Lisey. Right. Yeah, Billy, Billy Graham. He did that too. Yeah, Chrislam. In fact, that's who coined that phrase. They call them Christian Muslims. Boy, if that's not an oxymoron. Christian Muslims. Muslims want to kill Christians, but they're Christian. Abusers. Abusers of themselves with mankind. They abuse others. There's your abortion right there. Effeminate. You got the rainbow flag, and that's all going to be in June. I didn't miss anything. I believe that California itself makes Corinth look like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. <laughs> it's bad. It's already gone through the house that the infanticide bill passed through the house. 28 days, a baby can be butchered. Imagine a beautiful little baby on a gurney sitting there, smiling and all, and you're going to do that to them? Oh, I'm praying the Lord will stop that. He can. We had this referendum this morning. We're all going to sign it. We're going to sign it for House Bill 937 against infanticide. Paul would have his hands full, but he would go straight at them like an arrow. You know, he never looked back. Think about that. When he went in there, he was like a, he was a flint, like going into Jerusalem. And he went in there. He didn't care. He didn't care if they hurt him. What he did care about was their souls. Do we as Christians, do we care about other people's souls? I think it's a big question. Very big question. In verse 1, we see that Paul makes the long journey from Athens to Corinth. And then next, he runs into a couple of very interesting people that wind up being allies of his in the Christian faith. And they love the Lord. And once again, it's always amazing how the Lord connects these relationships and encourages us. He found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately from Italy, with his wife Priscilla, Claudius Caesar had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. They were dispersed and commanded to leave, and they were being greatly persecuted. You want to know what's interesting about this also? You want to go away from the actual lesson. Look at the logistics. Look at the names of the cities. Look at all the details. And we can stand here on May 29, 2022, and we can understand exactly what the Bible's talking about that all of this exists. You know how many people out there are saying the Bible is mythological and it's not true? Just the detail alone. Italy, Priscilla and Aquila were Italian. All of this, you could write up all kinds of things in these six verses and show how, how in the world could this not be true? How could the Bible not be true with this great detail? What our Lord Jesus Christ presents to Paul is commonplace among the Christian faith. You know, I remember, I think it was back 08 or 09, started, we started having some really great fellowship with some, of our, with some of our sister churches in our presbytery. And I remember being asked to preach out in Apollo, and we went up, Marcus Hook was having some problems getting pastor, the pastor had left, and we went up and helped them. And you know what I find that was so wonderful about that? We went out to lunch and met brethren and sisters that believed the exact same thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We didn't sit there and debate. We didn't argue whether there was a resurrection or not. We didn't argue whether Jesus Christ was the Messiah or he was just a good teacher, like many say. 
We have to talk about the same thing. And they were there. They're doing their work in Pittsburgh. They're doing their work here in Wilmington, Delaware. Others down in Greenville, South Carolina. You all know some churches. And they're all doing the work. This is with Paul. He runs into Priscilla and Aquila, and he has this common bond with them. The bond was unmistakable. And it doesn't take a whole lot of verses to figure that out. It didn't take like, books and books and books of all kinds of like, records from the scribes. It's right here. You go back in Acts chapter 18, look what it says in the, in the first couple of verses. I lost my way here, man. Let me find that. It says here in Acts chapter 18, He found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Adele. Some of you weren't here when I read this with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome and came to them, and because he was one of, because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. He, they loved the Lord together, and they worked together. This, this is incredible. They're of the same craft. What does that mean? Well, this husband and wife team become close allies of Paul the Apostle. He loved them, and they loved them and encouraged them. They risked their lives for Paul. They loved him so much. If you go to Romans chapter 16, verses 3 to 5, greet, Paul says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus, who have for my life laid down their own necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Salute my well-beloved Epinetus, who was the first fruits of Achaia under Christ. He was from Asia. He was near Corinth. He was another one. They were of the same craft. What's a tent maker? Anybody know what a tent maker did back then, other than make tents? What did a tent maker do? Yes, they hit the nail right on the head. Leather. They were upholsterers. And it was a tough job, but it was very lucrative because it could reach out to all kinds of industries. What better place to do it than in Corinth? Look at all the money coming through there. I want to say that today, modern-day Corinth is much like Baltimore and Washington, D.C. Baltimore is a great trade region. There's ports all up and down the harbor. You have down here at Curtis Bay. You go all the way over to the Inner Harbor. And a lot of the goods that come into Baltimore go right to D.C. from the ships. They were of the same craft. The Paul was bred a scholar... Yet he was, as has been recorded, a master of an incredible trade. He shared this bond with Aquila and Priscilla. He was a tent maker or an upholsterer. He tried to find a good upholsterer today. <laughs> you get a rip in your leather seat in your car, try to find somebody who can, find, who can fix that today. You know, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a real exclusive uh, craft. You know, to try to find a good upholsterer is hard to do like for good furniture, namely expensive or name-brand pieces for preservation. He made tents for the use of soldiers and shepherds. He made them of cloth, leather, or skins. He made them as the outcovering of the temple had been in the days of Moses. That's what the outcovering in the days of Moses, they used skins and they used cloth. That's what they used to cover themselves. There was an old Greek saying, sub palibus, or it meant under skins, which meant to live in a tent was to live under skins. Here's another thing. This is my blue collar. This, this is my memorial to blue collar workers today. And I put this here. This is, this, I love this. Jewish tradition was to leave children, leave them with learning and estates. 
But it was also the work of the Father to leave their sons with a trade. One rabbi centuries ago said, He that teaches not his son a trade is as if he taught him to be a thief. Another said, He that has a trade in his hand is as a vineyard that is fenced. We see that today in America, our nation has gone away from that. Kids don't want to work anymore. I'm in an industry of excavating contractors, environmental guys, infrastructure companies, and I talk to their operations managers almost daily, and they're all constantly asking me, do you know anybody that can come in and work in the shop? They don't even talk about getting them out on a bulldozer. They want them in the shop just to clean up and to learn and to try to... Nobody wants to do it. Nobody wants to work. They're offering them 25 bucks an hour, by the way. Starting out, 20 to 25 bucks, and they don't want to do it. In America, our nation has gone away from that. Children are not taught trades. They are taught how to control computers, watch things, and spend most of their young lives in electronics. In North Dakota, the governor has set up public grants from the youth to learn how to weld, pour concrete, run machinery, landscape, do plumbing work, AC work, and many other trades because there's a great shortage. I think it's a great thing. Governor wants to offer grants. You know, they're giving all kinds of grants for the think tanks. I think it's time to pay some of the guys where they'd work with their hands. Not everybody's cut out to be in the books all the time. You know? Some people got into a guy right now, he, he didn't make it out of eighth grade, and he built a $32 million excavating company from a farm tractor. I know many people like that. I think it's awesome. Things are getting really bad when it comes to crafts. So it's hard to find them today, but Paul is a Pharisee. He was bred up under the feet of Gamaliel. Yet having learned to make tents, did not ever lose the art. He paid for much of his own travel expenses. I think that's a good thing. I think that's great when a pastor still works, if he can, during the week and still has his craft and he does that. I remember Pastor Olson, many years, was, he worked in the mail, didn't you? In the mail industry, he was in the Air Force. Our pastor here for many years, he was an electrician. That's a good thing. Paul did it too. Matthew Henry gives a marvelous deduction about the craft of Paul. This is a direct quote. He says, He that had so much excellent work to do with his mind, yet when there was occasion, did not think it below him to work with his hands. Even those that are redeemed from the curse of the law are not exempt from the sentence. In the sweat of their face thou shalt eat bread. And he maintained his journeys by his own hand as not to make the gospel burdensome to others. Paul talked about that, how he said he liked to take care of his own expenses. He didn't leave a whole lot out. In 2 Corinthians eleven nine, he says, And when I was present with you and wanted, I was chargeable to no man. For that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied, and in all things I have kept myself from being burdensome unto you, so will I keep myself. He then writes to the church at Thessalonica, that he worked diligently to earn his own living. He says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 8-10, through 10, Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an ensample unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. Wow, we've heard that one before, haven't you? How many times did dad tell you that? Or your grandfather, you don't work, you don't eat. Where did it come from? Like many good sayings from the Bible. You don't work, you don't eat. But that's not true in America anymore, huh? Anybody hear that word of entitlement? You don't work, so you can't eat. You get checks from the government. 
problem is, is sooner or later, that kind of runs out, doesn't it? Then what? Then what happens? Then who's going to be able to sweep the streets? Who's going to be able to drive his big trucks around and get rid of the dumpsters? And get rid of all the trash in the dumpsters and all, you know? People need to work. Well, we're going to have to finish up here. It's getting a little late. Here we see that Paul would then, he reasoned on the Sabbath day with the Greeks and the Jews. And here's what I love again. You see Dionysus and Damaris. You see Priscilla and Aquila. Paul's really charged up. But now he goes into the temple, and now something really presses him. And what was that? Two of his old friends are coming out of nowhere to visit him. Now he said back in chapter 17, 15, exactly who it is. You got Timothy and Silas are now on their way, and they're going to meet up with Paul as he is debating. And he is just, he's like a pressure cooker knowing that they're coming. He's, I can't wait to see my buddies. And he's there, and he's just letting them have it. He's in that temple. That's the first thing Paul did whenever he went on his missionary journeys. To every new town, he went right to the temple first and went right to the Jews first. And he went and he gave them the gospel. And he would give that to them and he would pour his heart out. And then when they wouldn't listen, all right, no problem. I'll go right to the Gentiles and I will shake the dust off of my feet and you can do what you want to do. And so now he's got all that charge in him and Paul, and, and Paul is getting ready to be hooked up with Silas and Timothy. So that's what we're going to pick up next week. Let's finish this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this time together. Pray that we learned a lot together. Thank Thee for these words, these verses. And I pray, Lord, that that will give us, like, be, have us like pressurized cookers this morning, wanting to hear Thy Word and being charged up to open our hearts up to receive Thy Word as Thou speakest through Pastor Olson. I pray that Thou would bless our fellowship today. And I ask, Lord, I pray that Thou would strike down this Roe versus Wade bill Crush it so that it can't even be mentioned out of a person's mouth. And I pray that capital punishment will be the response of the next abortion in this country. And Lord, we see that being a real hotbed right now. We're continuing to pray hard. We just pray that thou would just, Lord, just, I pray, bless this referendum and this petition and help us to go forward and to do thy work this week. For signing, we pray. Amen. <clears throat>